I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. This is it. This is the big American Ornithological Society proposal episode with Nick Block. We're going to get in the weeds, folks, so be ready. It is on sort of the longer side, so I'm going to try to make these extra parts of the episode a little bit on the shorter side so we have more time to, to spend with Nick. But before I completely move on, I do want to give one more shout to Black Birders Week, in particular the panel discussion that I mentioned in the introduction the last time out. Uh, they were exactly as good as you would expect. Eye-opening ultimately inspiring. I will leave a link to those panels in the show notes. They were hosted by National Audubon. Please check them out if you have not done so already. I am I am struck by the youth and the energy of the organizers and the participants of that week. I It feels like we're in a moment here, and I, I really hope we don't waste it, but we've all got some work to do to get there. Those panels really help you crystallize that. So definitely go check those out. To that end, I will be speaking to a couple of the organizers, Karina Newsom and Taiki James, for next week's episode. I usually don't plug upcoming episodes in this spot because I don't always know who I'm going to talk to, but uh, I just want to make note of this one in particular. I do know who I'm talking to this time because I think that this Black Birders Week movement is such a huge part of what what is going on right now, and um, I'm, I'm really excited to help promote it. Anyway, all right, let's get to it. Let's get in the taxonomic weeds, the American Ornithological Society's check supplement determining all of the year's splits, lumps, and name changes is imminent. But before that comes out, we've got Dr. Nick Block here once again to talk about what he thinks the decisions should be, even if that isn't always what they actually are. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of June 2020. I don't have a lot of ABA rarities this week, aside from a common slash oriental cuckoo on St. Paul Island, Alaska, found by local birders once more. But there are a handful of first records to run through, quite a lot of them actually. In Washington, a scarlet tanager in Island County represents a long-awaited state first there. A one-day wonder, Rivoli's hummingbird at a feeder in Christian County, Missouri, which funnily enough, is where I grew up, is a first record for that state. Oklahoma also had a state first Rivoli's hummingbird. Those two birds were, in fact, determined to be different birds. That Oklahoma bird was in Kingfisher County. No word on whether there was a vagrant Kingfisher in Hummingbird County. Georgia becomes the latest state to add the ever-expanding neotropic cormorant to its list when one was found in Clay County, not too far from the Alabama border, this week. And that is all I've got for this week. For the rest of the rare birds I didn't mention, please check out the weekly rare bird alert post at aba.org slash rba. You can also join our rare bird alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash aba rare or follow our Twitter feed at aba bird alert. 
So it's split and lump season again, and that means I get to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Nick Block. He is a professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, and secretary of the Recording Standards and Ethics Committee. Are you still the secretary of the Recording Standards and Ethics Committee? I am for okay. this one last year. Yeah. All right, all right, still relevant. All right. And he, but he is the person I like to talk to when it comes to all the various American Ornithological Society classification committee decisions, non-decisions, all that stuff. Uh, thank you for coming back, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoy doing this. So, you know, on the whole, this seems like a pretty exciting slate of proposals. We have some splits. We have some lumps, which we don't see just a ton of anymore. Some common name changes, uh, which the committee has never been like super keen on. But we'll talk about them anyway. And of course, the usual taxonomic linear switcheroos, which we can talk about if you want. I, I don't have a lot to say about those. Um, but we've been doing this for, for four years now. So what is sort of your overall opinion of this docket of these decisions? The proposals for this year? The proposals, yes. Yeah. So, I, I, like you said, I think there's a nice variety of things in here. There's, um, they they came out with like the the full list of proposals this year is quite long, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I like that. I like seeing that that more people are submitting proposals. Um, it means more research is being done too, which is always really fun to try and keep up with. I say try; it's not easy to keep up with. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> um, and uh, uh, and it's nice to see that there are some proposals that are in. In particular, there there there's one at least this year, the Mexican duck one, where that proposal that was rejected mm-hmm. was just two years ago, and already they're coming back with a new one. And uh, to me, that's that's kind of unusual to see them kind of have to reassess something so soon after a decision yeah, was yeah. made before. And I like that because it, a, a new paper just came out and there are someone already put in a proposal. And I, I like that more people are putting in these proposals. Um, a lot of them to me have been some common sense things mm-hmm. that that's nice to see people just put down on, on paper because the, the effort to putting these proposals in is significant. It yeah. takes quite a bit to put one of these together to do the research and, and summarize it. And um, it's really uh, awesome to see people um, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's jump right into it. Let's start with the lump since we don't see lumps very often. So it's kind of uh, we're in a very splitty time in the uh, sure. uh, uh, bird taxonomy. Um, but there is a proposal to lump the Northwestern crow, which has always been sort of a weird species back in with American crow, so we would lose a species. I do not have Northwestern crow on my life list. I know a lot of people do. I think you do. Um, what is your <laughs> What is your take on this proposal? Um, what is the science behind it? Why Why are we doing this now? Yeah, I have seen Northwestern crow, although. The one I originally saw was somewhere in Northwest Washington, um, and and it was one of those things that was I was nineteen, mm-hmm. and uh, and we're like, okay, we're here. We saw a crow on the beach. Uh, we can count it as, as Northwestern <laughs> it's doing crow. The Northwestern we don't know how to things. tell it apart, yeah. but you know now we can call it <laughs> Northwestern crow. And um, in hindsight, you know, as I learned more, it's like, oh, there's like, well, that's a that's a shady lifer there on my <laughs> life list. <laughs> Um, and I've seen them in Alaska now, which is, you know, where they're pure Northwestern crows or, you know, if you want to call them that, but, um, I mean, you can call them that. So, but the data behind the lump, uh, proposal here, um, are pretty good. in, in my opinion, the, they show that Northwestern crow and American crow did used to be kind of evolutionarily distinct mm-hmm. units, right? So, 
if you look at Northwestern crows in, say, Alaska and American crows in California, you, you can tell them apart genetically. Yeah. Um, but as you get into you know the Pacific Northwest to British Columbia and Washington, there's over 900 kilometers of area where there's mixed genetics yeah. in the birds. Is this what we would call a, a hybrid swarm? Yes, I would, I would say that, you know, and sometimes, you know, this is where the term hybrid zone, mm -hmm. it still applies, but when the hybrid zone is over 900 kilometers wide, yes, I, in my opinion, <laughs> and I think the article that the, the, the article's conclusion that they're trying to make is that this essentially is becoming a hybrid swarm that now that these things, Northwestern crow and American crow, which probably used to be geographically isolated, but when glaciers retreated, the idea is that, okay, then maybe they came back in contact again. Mm -hmm. And so when they did that, they weren't different enough from each other to not, you know, be able to form hybrids that are then just fine. Yeah. So they're high, the, the key thing about what the, these data are showing is that there's lots of back crosses. So there's, there's everything genetically from a pure American to a pure Northwestern. Just like what people have been seeing with the with the phenotype, with their size, mm -hmm. you know, there's a cline. And that cline and size, which people have, have seen, and that's why people have often wondered about this this split in the first place, it, it shows up in the genetics as well. And so often this can mean that you have two things that are not recognizing each other as different, their hybrid offspring do just as well as the parents. So you have gene flow spreading out in this really big range and you end up with eventually a giant hybrid swarm. Mm -hmm. And what, if you apply the kind of methods this committee has mostly used with the biological species concept to make decisions, these two entities, evolutionary entities, no longer seem to be acting as two different right. species. Is this similar to what's going on with like golden winged warbler and blue winged warbler? But the difference being that like those are very different looking birds phenotypically, whereas crows, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's much more <laughs> difficult for us to tell the difference between a Northwestern crow and an American crow. So that's that's an interesting question because I would argue that there are some hybrid zones out there, and I would say golden winged and blue winged probably fall in this category. Um, and a, another one that people might not be know of: Townsend's warblers and hermit warblers. Um, the the hybrid zones aren't aren't quite like this, where it seems to be that gene flow is kind of going both ways. That there's not like one dominant species with like blue winged and gold winged. Blue winged seems to be the dominant yeah, species yeah. and and Townsend's hermit Townsend's the dominant species but yes both of those have hybrid zones that don't seem to be stable you know meaning that like there's a lot of kind of breakdown in species barriers um uh so it's not quite the same but it's in that same category and i yeah i would argue that blue wing and gold wing warblers will look more similar to each other yeah. And, and Townsend's and Hermit, if they looked more similar to each other, I think there's a really good chance that uh, they would get lumped. I think the, the similarities between the crows in terms of how they look certainly helps 
um, on a subjective level. Yeah, people are tired of trying to split. identify those birds. <laughs> so yes, it's just yeah. easier to toss them together. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if people still want to try and figure out what they're looking at, you know, I can say that the the hybrid zone centers on like kind of the Vancouver area mm-hmm. in southwestern British Columbia. It's hard to predict exactly what the AOS is going to do year to year. I know we are, sure. our track record is sort of mixed on that, but um, <laughs> this, yeah. this feels like a, a good chance, better than half, better than 50%, maybe. Yeah, yeah. My crystal ball is definitely not good for this committee. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yes, this feels like a good chance. The data seem to reflect a scenario of random mating mm-hmm. in the hybrid That's zone the between these two lineages. Yeah. And that is very important from a biological species concept. All right. uh, random mating and hybrids that are just as fit as their parents that's a, that's that's a good sign that you've got right. one biological species. All right. Well, let's go the other direction and go to splits and, and stay in that part of the world. Uh, one of the more interesting splits that came out or that was proposed this time uh, was for the uh, distinctive subspecies of northern Sawet owl on the Haida Gwaii Islands off the coast of British Columbia to be possibly called Haida Gwaii Sawet owl, which is a nightmare in terms of like a banding code, but it's still a very cool <laughs> bird. Do you think that this is a, a good species when you're looking at splits that we've seen in the past? Does it check all those boxes? So I I do think that it is acting like a good species right now. Yeah. I I I actually I really enjoyed this paper because um you know I've I've known about this subspecies, you know, practically since I started birding, didn't really know much about Always it. Always a little picture down in the corner of the, yeah, <laughs> the plate. Yeah, you know, I knew I knew they it. looked different yeah. and I knew they were isolated, but I I didn't know much else about them. Yeah. I mean, I I you probably can't say many birders have seen these, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. But what this paper did the the researchers this was the first time that at least I, I think so where they did kind of genetic work with this subspecies and as a lot of papers do these days they they used a, a very large genomic kind of level data set mm-hmm. where they get thousands of uh, markers to look at to find differences and um, and they found that it was very much distinct uh, genetically that they can tell it apart that it, it it clusters on its own, separate from the the nominate subspecies, and that they separated around two hundred and seventy eight hundred thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh, wait, two hundred seventy eight thousand. Two hundred seventy eight thousand. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two hundred seventy thousand. Um, and uh, so so it checks the box of being genetically distinct, um, and and the data also show that there probably was some gene flow during the speciation process, but it right now the numbers are very low, if if yeah. any at all. It is interesting because that the island, the Haida Gwaii Island, the big island, it's a series, it's like three or four, well, it's probably more than yes. that, but there's one big island. Um, is, is It seems like it's just far enough away to make gene flow between the island birds and the mainland birds difficult or unlikely. And that's sort of the sort of thing that we see in a lot of, you know, speciation on islands yes yeah when things colonize islands it's not uncommon for them to um end up going from something say like a migratory species Mm -hmm. to becoming sedentary yeah and um and that's that's what happened here is that you know the dominant subspecies is most people probably know is very migratory Mm -hmm. and nomadic and kind of irregular migration you know they have very high dispersal uh the Haida Gwaii subspecies is completely sedentary 
And what's cool and, and what the, this should help support the split, I think, is that the nominate subspecies does migrate through the islands and winters there as well. Yeah. And so they do have some geographic overlap then and, and and given the way that the nominate subspecies breeds and that if if winter conditions are good they'll stay and breed in that mm-hmm. spot that you know that there is the opportunity for sure for potential gene flow here yeah um, because the wintering birds could stay and potentially breed with the Haida Gwaii birds but they don't seem to be doing mm-hmm. that um, and if they are there seems to be no evidence of hybrids being present, which means that if there are hybrids, they're probably they're not, not doing very well. Yeah. They're, yeah, their fitness is probably low. And what I th- what, what I learned in this paper I didn't know, which is really cool, is that one of their hypotheses for this is that their um, uh, diet is different. Yeah. I thought so that was so cool. <laughs> yeah, the Haida Gwaii birds eat a lot of intertidal invertebrates. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, that's really cool. So you got an owl eating little like marine invertebrates, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did not know that. And, and the nominate subspecies doesn't do that. They just eat little small mammals and things like that. Uh, so they're, they're, one of their suggestions is that that could be a reason that right. uh, you have a, a barrier here is that their a hybrid diet would be they wouldn't know what to do or something, yeah. you know. Basically, there's some ecological things that are helping to maintain these the species boundary yeah. it, it is what they're suggesting, and it, it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. It is very cool, you know. There's the there's the genetic difference that we've seen. There's the behavioral difference. They look. I mean, you can identify them. You know, the oh, yes. white birds are much darker. They have that kind of uh, very rusty front, which is sort of typical of birds in the um, you know Pacific it's... Northwest. It looks like a pretty clear cut. Uh, example of uh, of a split and uh, then canada would get an endemic which is so weird yes. for such a giant country on a continent <laughs> that they would have an endemic species so. i know I, that's really cool yeah. and and i you know yes like you said it checks a lot of boxes and um i think the fact that the the nominate subspecies migrates through in winters there yeah. i, I think will will help tip the tables because it shows the committee the committee likes to see that there's actual like observation of whether or not they breed yeah, together, opportunities, you know, not, I guess. not yeah. just the genetics. Yeah. Yes. A similarity here is the, the crossbill mm, and mm-hmm. the Cassia crossbill yeah. and that you have this sedentary species where the relatives migrate through and do occur there, but they don't seem to be breeding together. It's a very similar it's situation. It's a really I similar think. situation. Yeah. Nomadic, mm-hmm. uh, boreal breeding. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the, yeah. yeah that's so I, I would be very surprised if, you know, I say this, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't even say it cause it means it probably won't, but like, <laughs> I would be very surprised if they don't split it because it does seem to fit a pattern. Like I said, Cassie crossbills yeah. that to me is a very similar situation and they split that. There's another split on the docket, uh, one that a lot of people um, are probably familiar with, one that used to be a full species, and I'm talking about great white heron, the uh, you know South Florida, Caribbean, currently subspecies of great blue heron. And that that's potentially a split as well, but the reasons for that one are a little bit different. It reminds me a lot of the Thayer's Iceland goal decision in that the reasoning for this one seems to be that the justification for the original decision was bad, and so we should go back to the status quo from before that decision, which would mean great white heron, uh, which many you know birders are probably familiar with in the Florida Keys, uh, would be a full species. Yes, I, that is some of the argument. I, I got the impression that they were trying to make is that the lump was unjustified based on on the data. Mm-hmm. That um, and and this is 
uh, been the case, like you said, and, and, you know, yeah, like with Thayer's Iceland's, this has been the case for um, a few things that we see proposals now is that they're wanting to revisit changes that were made yes. without data. And they're saying we should go back to those until we have data. I mean, but in this case, they do have data now, mm-hmm. you know, some new data on, on the great white heron. The researchers did some genetic sequencing of the birds. They So they sequenced the, you know, the, the pure white, great white herons, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they sequenced the kind of Wordman's yeah, heron, the weird so kind uh, you of know, intergrade birds. Yeah. Yes, which used you know is considered a, a subspecies, but what they have shown and what people in the past have suggested, if I remember correctly, is that really those are just hybrids yeah. between great white heron and great blue herons, and they're not super common. No, no, it's because they're yeah. it, it's not a distinct evolutionary entity yeah. really what it is yeah. is just any bird that seems to be intermediate between white and blue and as it turns out they're almost all or at least maybe all are coming from some hybrids that are occurring in mm-hmm. the florida bay area um, kind of between the mainland and the keys and so th- it, essentially that area is a hybrid zone and that that yeah. is i think uh my takeaway from the paper is that this is it's just it's just another hybrid zone. Yes, a stable hybrid zone. Too. Yes, I mean it's been that way for as long as people have been looking at those birds. Yes, yeah, it's not like it's moved. Um, yeah, and in this case, gene flow. You know, we talked about like with the crows, where it's kind of going both ways. It doesn't seem to be because it's unstable, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, gene flow does seem to be pretty low, but it's there. But it's only going one way. It's going from great white herons into the Florida Bay hybrid area. And then from there into the great blues. So it's it's kind of a one-way gene flow thing. It doesn't quite stop. There apparently are some great white heron uh, kind of alleles, genetic markers spread throughout most of the great blue heron population in North America. But that's huh. you know that doesn't that, that doesn't mean too much really from because uh, yeah. it could be for other reasons. Um, probably is honestly. Um, so I mean, essentially, what they showed is that the the great white heron is a an, an evolutionarily like kind of distinct entity and it hybridizes with great blue heron in this area. The number of hybrids is pretty low compared to what you would expect if mating mm-hmm. was random. So this was the other key is that they yeah. showed that in this hybrid area, the Florida Bay area, great white herons and great blue herons do not mate randomly. They yeah. will choose their own kind much more often than you would expect by chance. This, to me, again, with this, the, the way kind of the committee seems to be making decisions is really key, that they observed actually out there in the hybrid zone that the two species are not randomly mating. And if you have non-random mating, this is a very good sign that they're biological species, that the committee likes to see that actually with kind of the the breeding in the field data, and you know they they did a good job of of showing that, and so this to me is is the most unpredictable. Um, <laughs> the committee might disagree when we talk about Mexican duck, but this this one yeah. <laughs> the, to me this is it's a very subjective decision on this one. This is where species, hmm. you know, we have always you know we've talked about in the past it's a it's a blurred line um decisions on which you call one species or two is very much a subjective uh thing you know the the data are objective but you know we can say okay 85 percent uh mate with you know white mate with white blue mate with blue 
But what does that mean when we talk about do we draw the line between them as species or not? That's a very subjective thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I, th- I could see them going either way with this. You know, I, as as listeners might know of me from the past, like I think that this would probably be a good split. I think the way that we tend to apply the biological species concept these days is a little more relaxed than in the past. You know, there are hybrids, yes, but as you mentioned, that hybrid zone is stable. You know, there's not it's not random mating. So those to me are good uh, good indicators of biological species that do hybridize sometimes, just like flagellae and indigo bunting and things like that, yeah, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Let's go to another potential split, the Mexican duck split. We talked, we've talked about it a little bit um, because it was on the, um, it was a proposal a couple of years ago that they did not accept, um, but eBird did accept, interestingly yes. enough. You can count uh, Mexican duck on your eBird checklist even now. Uh, but now it's back and it looks like there's a good chance that it is going to go through if I'm, you know, sort of reading the tea leaves correctly. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, what what has changed between now and then? Right. So I, I think that was the first um, decision ever where the Clements and Ebert taxonomy yeah. did not go <laughs> the same direction as the AOS committee. So that was, uh, you know, I, I personally agreed with that to, to go the other way. But um, yeah. so the the new thing, and like I said, this is really unusual to have a proposal come back right away, essentially, is that in the meantime, um, there was uh, last year a new paper published that added uh, much more genetic data. So the proposal mm-hmm. two years ago had a, a decent amount of genetic data, but it's kind of the conclusion that came out of that is that they couldn't necessarily tell them apart Mexican duck, but they also couldn't tell apart black ducks. So yeah, right. Exactly. It, it was like if you're going to keep black ducks separate, then you also should split Mexican, you know, yeah. or lump them all. That's kind of what the data <laughs> seemed to support. But that, but they didn't yeah. do anything, and that's why I was, I was a little frustrated and seemed very objective to me. But yeah, wasn't it something that like even model duck was thrown in there as well? Yes. So um, like, what was it? Was it Mexican? One of the model ducks was closer to Mexican and the other yeah. model duck was closer to black duck or something? Yes. Like so one of, yeah. one of the analyses and in this paper as well, one of the analyses actually shows that, that the West, West Gulf coast is what they're called. The West Gulf coast model ducks, like in Texas, mm-hmm. Louisiana are, are more closely related to, to, uh, to like to Mexican duck than they are to the Florida ones. That's one of the analyses shows that, but not, yeah. not all of them. So that's okay. This, okay, the, okay. The challenge here is that these are all very young species. And when mm-hmm. things are very young, often the genetics are still intertangled. Um, is that a word? Intertwined. Inter- yes. Intertwined. No, I hear you. Yeah. Um, uh, it takes time for differences, genetic differences that arise to kind of sort themselves out to be something that's kind of like fixed in one species and not present in another. This is the sort of situation where like you're on the interstate, you see the sign for the highway to split. We're at the sign now. We're not at the place where yes. the highway actually splits. I, yeah. Oh my gosh. I might have to remember that analogy from my evolution <laughs> class. I've never thought there, of that. There you go. Yes, it's very much like that. You see the sign coming. So a lot of people start to get into their right or left lanes lanes. yeah you know so you got four lanes or whatever but not everybody does but when you reach a split everyone has now yes everyone have to make yeah that's it's a that's a 
Awesome analogy. Yes. So, yes. so, so when they're really young, yes, you're, you're at the point where you see the sign, uh, the changes are starting to occur, but it's really hard to, to, to pull out the ones that, you know, are actually, you know, fixed for one species as opposed to, um, something that's not going to be different once they actually split the value of these, of the technology we have now for genetic sequences is that we can sequence, you know, in many cases, whole genomes, right? So when you, increase the number of places you're trying to find those differences genetically, you're more likely to find them. Okay. And so yeah, in this case, the new genetic data set that they uh, was published last year had 150 times more of these loci of genet- you know, places where they're looking for differences than the previous data set. Mm-hmm. And so the upside of that is that what they found is now they can tell them apart genetically. Pretty, cl- okay. pretty clearly, actually. Yeah. And this is, not, this is not surprising. This is kind of exactly what you expect when you have young species, when you have relatively small genetic data sets. The probability that you happen to sequence a spot that has a difference is low. And if you find one, it's kind of hitting the lottery. Anyway. Mm-hmm. You got lucky. Yeah. But when you get data from across the whole genome like this, it's a pretty good chance you're going to find those differences and, and they'll, right. they'll come out. And, and that's what they found. And so... What essentially what they found is that there are distinct clusters of these ducks, and that they absolutely are genetically identifiable. Um, so you have a, a cluster for Mexican duck, you have a cluster for mallard, and one for black duck. And the cool thing, and this is outside the <laughs> the, the, the yeah, yeah yeah outside the uh, scope of this proposal, but model ducks, the Florida birds and the West Gulf Coast birds are very different from each other genetically. Yeah. They are more different from each other, uh, at least in my interpretation, than the mallard, black duck, Mexican duck group is. Like the, the first clusters that really pop out are these two model duck groups when, when they're doing these analyses. Yeah. So, you know, another future split potentially. And, yeah. and, it, and it, to me, it's one of those cases where it's like, well, if someone put in the proposal – how could they not split them if they just split Mexican? You know, like right. so. Yeah, using the same data. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that'll yeah. be interesting to see if someone puts a proposal in the future for for that split because you know the genetic data strongly supports. Yeah. Um, the, the groundwork has already been laid. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. you know this, I think this paper helps kind of um, uh, uh, kind of it's very similar in conclusion to the previous uh, data set about how okay if black duck is going to be separate then you have to separate Mexican duck too if you want to be consistent. Because this paper confirmed what some people probably suspected is that the, if you're looking at uh, one species pair, that's hardest to tell apart, it's mallard Mm -hmm. and black duck. Um, Mexican duck actually comes out as its own thing before black duck. That's so interesting because you think of those as being the two morphologically most different species. Like those are the easiest to tell when I'm birding. Yes. Yeah. I can, and model ducks are the hardest. <laughs> there are all sorts of intergrades too. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so I, it's it to me that that the very similar conclusion that if you want to be kind of consistent in how you treat species barriers here, if you're not going to lump them all, then you need to split Mexican duck to have similar mm-hmm. treatment of these kind of entities i think what we've learned here is that the uh, mallard like ducks are a complete mess yeah uh, yeah it's they're, they're <laughs> not neat and pretty the the, the nice yeah. neat pretty you know easy to define ones are the two model ducks and they're the lumps yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, either we have we'll you know either we have five species 
or we have three and one being mallard black duck mexican duck and then two model ducks that's that's what the, <laughs> the that's what the genetic data support as the most kind of likely scenarios from an evolutionary is, perspective duck chaos <laughs> yes yes exactly so uh we talked about genetics those are the main you know big genetic stuff we'll uh, we won't we don't need to go into the wide eyes because that's kind of a yeah, that's that. We don't know. People don't really see white eyes that often. No, that's, so, a, that, that's a bit of a messy one, too. <laughs> but let's go to the fun stuff. Let's go to the names. Yeah. So there are two kind of interesting name proposals, and I do want to kind of gauge your gauge your thoughts on that. Uh, the first is the removal of scrub from the scrub jays. So they're, they'll just it started as scrub jay, and now it will be not no scrub anywhere in yes. the jay name. So it'd be California jay, Florida jay, Woodhouse's jay, and Island jay, which is kind of an I think they should change that to Santa Cruz Jay, but I'm just that's, I agree. <laughs> whatever. But yeah, so they're they're essentially getting rid of this because there's some other Aphelicoma Jays that do not have scrub in their name, correct? Yes. Yeah, it's consistency. Yeah. Yes, and and this is one of those scenarios where the argument is that we should be going back to original common names. So mm-hmm. the AOU had common names for all these subspecies california yeah. jay woodhouses they had those um you go back to like 1931 before there was any lumping of these things and all these lineages had their own common names and there was no scrub as part of any of it and so part of the argument here is that um the origin of the name scrub jay was essentially that was a new name that they came up with when they lumped all these things together they needed a new name for them and that's where scrub jay came from Scrub and superfluous. Yes, exactly. So I I like this proposal because it simplifies a name. And we've seen them do that, sharp-tailed sparrows, right? So, you know, just drop it. Make things easier. Yeah. And so one more name. I don't know that it's going to go through the Olive Warbler name change to Ocotero. Yes. Uh, Olive Warbler, famously one of the worst names in among North American birds. It's yes. not Olive. It's not a Warbler. <laughs> it's not. It's like it's it's one of the it's a North American endemic family. It's like its own family of birds, yes. which is super cool. And that was sort of one of the um, justifications for changing the name to Ocotero, which it's a, it's a, like a local name in West Mexico where they're found where. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a Spanish you know colloquial name and um, yeah. and yeah it, it's derived from uh, ocote I think was is the word mm-hmm. for pine and it's like okay that's yeah. perfect right yeah. um, so yes this this is uh, the the argument being made is yet the, yes common names often don't reflect kind of evolutionary units anymore. But we've started to see that change a bit, like tanagers. Some tanager mm-hmm. names have changed, and Spindalis they use as an example in the proposal. So this is just a, an opportunity to, one, remove a potential confusion with our perulid warblers, like our, you know, mm-hmm. call those real warblers. <laughs> a lot of old world birders are going to be very angry with that. I, with that. I know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, re- reflecting my geographic bias, absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> it, like you said, it's it's a monotypic family. It's the only yeah. species in the whole family. It's a very distinct thing from an evolutionary perspective on its branch, all of its own, right? And so a lot of species like that have their own kind of just mo- it's just a one word name you know mm-hmm. um uh, and we have some things that are similar uh, verdin and uh, um uh, rentit limpkin yeah um yeah, you yeah. know things that tend to be it, it, when they're on their own little branch they just have one one name and it, it's great 
that's another aspect of this is it helps emphasize the, the distinctiveness of this bird. And so I think this is a great proposal. I love the name Okotero. I just it's think that's very really evocative. Cool. Yeah. Um, and this name is already used, right? So it's not like a, a new name that they made up. This is a yeah. common, this, this is what it's called in its range in, in Mexico in most of the time, right? So why not make the switch? It helps emphasize what a cool, uh, unique bird this is, which I do think that a lot of, you know, birders might not be aware of that. Um, because of the common name. And so if you switch it, it helps make people, and I'm always for this, it helps make people more aware of the the evolutionary distinctiveness of of the bird. And to me, that's a a very good goal to reach for, (laughs) is people understanding things like that. Thank you so much, Nick, for shedding light on these taxonomic issues again. He is a, Nick Block is a biologist. He's a, a member, the secretary of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee and a Twitter person at NLB Birder. Always fun to talk to you about this. Um, I guess we'll see you next year. I, I certainly hope so. Thanks so much, Nate. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and you can help support us and this podcast by joining the ABA. We even have e-memberships and discounted memberships for young people and students, so we can definitely help you find a way to support us. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout-out to Barbara Busatil and Barb Caustic from Vero Beach, Florida, Gene Olson from Seattle, Washington, Leslie Smoot from Beverly, Michigan, Alec Crawford from Toronto, Ontario, and Arif Gauss from Issaquah, Washington, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. If membership is not in the cards for you, you can still help by heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving us a rating or review. Those frequently provide useful feedback and they help other birders find us. Thank you to all of you who are doing that as well. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon. You know, we ended up doing a mitochondrial DNA test on Jeff Gordon's, or maybe it's Jeff's Gordon, and the results came back. They showed us there were actually two separate clusters, one around birding and the other around race car driving. So look for a split there in the future. Technical production is by John Lowry because there are so many Johns out there, it feels awfully redundant to continue to use that name. So we're eliminating it. We're just gonna call him the Lowry. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, whose role in this podcast is awfully similar, which suggests that maybe they should be lumped into a single ABA entity called Gregged Neasley. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, it's clear that the American Birding Association is a terrible name. We represent two countries. We're not birds. We can't do much associating these days. So we're going to go ahead and change the name to what we are called colloquially in West Mexico, Abatero. We are taxonomically unique after all. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.